Hello, everybody. On today's episode of Trek in Time, we're going to talk about how to make friends by beating the crap out of people. That's right. <laughs> Welcome to Trek in Time, where we're talking about every episode of Star Trek in chronological order. We're also taking a look at those episodes in the context of their original date of broadcast. So we're looking at things from 2003. We crossed into 2003, Matt. How did that feel? Uh, it felt great, Sean. It felt that great. Sounds, that sounds like very close to my experience. I was just like, we did it. We did it, everybody. <laughs> Who are we? Who's crossing into 2003 watching episodes of Enterprise? Well, it's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a published author. I've written some sci-fi. I've written some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matt. He's the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel, Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing well. So today we're going to be talking about episode 13 of season two. This is titled Dawn. And as I mentioned, the big question to come out of this one is, can you make friends by getting into a fist fight? But before we get into that, Matt, I believe you've got some episodes from previous, some comments, I'm sorry. I believe you've got some comments from previous episodes to share with us. Yes, I do. I have one from Robotrav, big support of the show. I have never been as much into the action and fighting scenes as the science and dialogue scenes, but I get that they may be necessary to appeal to a broader audience. Also, can confirm that it's lots of fun being a TNT supporter. That's us. Just quit dodging my coins, Sean. So it's, <laughs> I can't make any promises. They sting a little bit, but I will do my best. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about that thread in almost every single episode for the past, I don't know, four or five shows where it's like, it seems to be leaning more towards the, we have to cram some kind of action in here where it yeah. feels kind of shoehorned in where if they yeah. hadn't done that, it might've actually been a better show. And I will spoiler right now for this episode this i think is the exception to that yes because for me the action is deeply intertwined with the things i agree with robotrav completely i'm always more drawn to the dialogue and the the looking at different philosophical lenses mm -hmm. onto a situation this episode i thought did a really nice job of being able to balance those two so. agreed the other comment was from AJ Chan, a regular commenter as well, uh, from the episode The Catwalk, where they had to hide in the nacelle to protect themselves from a storm. The idea to do a bottle episode inside the nacelle was brilliant. I enjoy seeing other parts of the ship like the nacelle because it helps me to imagine being part of the crew. I agree with that. There's episodes from like Deep Space Nine and Next Generation where they're in parts of the, sta the station or the ships that you normally don't get to see, like the Jeffrey's tubes and things like that, that actually help to kind of like flesh out the experience of being aboard the ship, not just these just endless hallways everywhere. It's, it's kind of fun to kind of see the behind the scenes of what the operation is actually like. Yeah. And to get a sense of scale as well. Yeah. Yep. We, in watching these shows and this goes back to the original series as well. And I think it came, it's probably born of Gene Roddenberry's understanding. He was a Navy guy. I think it comes from his understanding of how these ships worked, how mm -hmm. naval vessels work. And right back into the very first series, the original series, we see Scotty having to crawl into Jeffrey's tubes that are just barely bigger than him mm -hmm. and working inside the belly of the ship at various, at various times. Whereas there's you know, the warp core and you've got the engineering section and you see people walking into a large room with this massive engine running. 
like that's all well and good. But when it comes to the circuitry and the little details at the edges of the ship, mm-hmm. it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until finally you're, you know, one guy in a little tiny room. Yeah. And there's barely enough room for you to stand upright. And, yep. and I, I like that detail for that perspective as well. And I thought that episode did a really great job of creating a sense of claustrophobia in the way that it was shot and showing mm-hmm. people literally sitting shoulder to shoulder while trying to make the best of a bad situation. Agreed. So for today's episode, we're going to be talking about Dawn. As I mentioned, this is the 13th episode of the second season. Matt, do you want to do us the honor of reading the Wikipedia oh boy. synopsis? And to our listeners, buckle up. Yes, yeah, strap yourself in. I have, this is the first time I've read this, so I apologize. I think you reading them cold is the only way to go. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Dawn is the 39th episode, production number 213 of the television series Star Trek Enterprise, the 13th of the second season. Yes. We'll let that one sit for a moment because that is written as if it is a sentence, but I don't want to go all writerly on everybody. It's not actually a sentence. The redundancy is amazing. Okay. Set in the set in the 2100s of the Star Trek universe, the NX-01 Enterprise has set out to explore the galaxy. Commander Trip Tucker's shuttle pod is fired upon by an Arconian ship and is stranded on a desert moon with his attacker. As dawn comes on the moon, the temperature increases beyond what the characters can survive. <laughs> yeah, this is a good Me- one. Meanwhile, meanwhile, in orbit, Captain Archer of the Enterprise tries to deal with the Arconians. How many times do you have to say the name of the ship? We get it. <laughs> this is the episode that has the Enterprise in it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Jeez. Wow. I, I love whitewater rafting through those synopses. It's, it's always fun seeing things like the way Matt reads it. You can hear our listeners can hear the punctuation. They can hear the commas. They can hear the pauses. None of those commas are actually in what he's reading. Matt is doing that instinctively. Yeah. So when Matt read, meanwhile, in orbit, Archer of the Enterprise tries to deal with the Arconians. It's actually written, meanwhile, in orbit, Captain Archer of the Enterprise tries to deal with the Arconians. (laughs) There is no punctuation. I also like that there is occasionally random capitalization, such as in the phrase, the Enterprise has set out to explore the galaxy. Capital the word G galaxy, galaxy is yes. capitalized. It doesn't say Milky Way galaxy. It just says galaxy. Capital so, G. Capital G. It's the <laughs> galaxy. As always, Matt, you managed to come out of that with a gold star, despite the fact that the writing is not nearly as good. This episode was originally aired on January 8th, 2003. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we've crossed into 2003. There's been a few weeks since the last episode aired. So what we've missed is the last two weeks of December. Of course, most shows go on hiatus through that period of the year. This episode was directed by Roxanne Dawson. This is the third time she's directing, I believe. And this episode was written by John Shiban, who we last saw as the writer on the episode Minefield, which both Matt and I thought were an, was a excellent episode with some mm-hmm. very strong writing. And I think that that is on display here as well. This episode, cutting to the, the end, is, it's interesting. I think one of the things we'll talk about at the end is its overall reception and lingering reception to this day. And I think that there's some bad, I think there have been some unfair things said about the writing. 
So I look forward to getting into that toward the end of the episode. As far as what the world was like when this episode aired, well, Matt, it was your last week to be able to dance along to Lose Yourself by Eminem, which, <laughs> as we'll remember from the end of 2002, the movie Eight Mile introduced the song Lose Yourself. It was the number one song for roughly eight weeks or so. So it had a good standing. But this will be the final week that we'll be talking about that. And in the movie theaters, this first week of January, the number one film was Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which made $25 million. However, it had already been in theaters. It debuted in the middle of December, but there were no episodes of Enterprise. That's why we're just now talking about it for the first time. The Two Towers would go on to make $947 million, which raises this question from me. How does Peter Jackson still have a job? <laughs> yes. On television, what were we watching? Well, on the day of this episode, January 8th, 2003, this episode earned 3.9 million viewers, which I've left in my notes, as Matt could probably see. Oof. Yeah. Not a good viewership. Big it's drop. down from previous weeks. Big and drop. as Matt, I'm sure you've picked up on this too. We go through a series of episodes where we're like, eh, this isn't so great. And the numbers kind of plateau. And then we get to an episode like this, which I think is a stronger episode, and the viewership goes down. They are not yeah. doing themselves a service by having uneven production. Correct. So they are slowly bleeding viewers. But who are they bleeding those viewers to? Well, this episode would have aired at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in the U.S. The competition would have included My Wife and Kids and George Lopez on ABC. Both of those shows got almost 11 million viewers. So that's mm -hmm. the kind of competition. But they didn't even win this time slot this week. And I do not know how to understand what I'm about this. to say. I know. The number one show was with almost 14 million viewers was Star Search on CBS. I do not recall Star Search ever being on CBS. So that just gives you a sense slot, of where I, I was. <laughs> I thought Star Search was like the 80s or something like that. It's like, what, thought, what is it doing on TV yeah, again? It's, I completely it's, forgot about that. Yeah. So other programming that beat out this episode of Enterprise included Ed on NBC, the Fox Wednesday night movie. Does anybody else have trouble recalling when Fox was showing movies in the middle of the week? I didn't remember this. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. And the one program on major networks that Enterprise was able to beat, but barely, was Birds of Prey, as Matt and I have experienced in the past. Oh, yeah, that was a thing. That's so, right. The number one show for the week, though, was with 23 million CSI. People may remember that CSI was a little do-nothing program from the early 2000s that would go on to just be forgotten in the annals of history. That's right. I'm, of course, joking. It is still on the air. And in the news, on this day, from the New York Times, January 8th, 2003, threats and responses. The UN study sees the potential of 500,000 Iraqis facing injury in case of war. This is part of an ongoing buildup to the U.S. invasion of Iraq that would occur later this year in 2003. And the estimates would prove long-term to be woefully low. Also in the news, 
FEMA was criticized for its handling of 9-11 claims. An internal review of the Federal Emergency Management Agency's performance after the September 11th terror attack has concluded that the agency should have been more flexible and fair in helping people with economic losses. The agency also needs to coordinate better with other government agencies and charities in future disasters, the review concluded. The hardships of people both in New York City and in Washington, where the Pentagon was attacked, there was very uneven response. And Mm -hmm. a particular in Manhattan, where people were basically losing their apartments, losing their homes, because jobs were disrupted, incomes were disrupted, and then people were left basically out in the cold. So here we are, flying forward into sometime in late September or October of 2152, and we find, well, it's Commander Tucker. Trip is off by himself, flying solo in a shuttlecraft between a bunch of moons, testing a new autopilot. So, Matt, right off the bat, what did you think about this episode in general? And what did you think about this start to the episode in particular? I, in general, thought this was a good episode. I thought it was pretty strong because it was laser focused. That's one of the problems I've had with the episodes before this. It felt like they were trying to bite off more than they could chew. Too many plot lines. This one was pretty straightforward, clear, focused on one character primarily. So the the whole autopilot thing, it's a MacGuffin. Who cares? Have Trip do whatever he wants to do in this thing and just have him crash on the planet. It's like, that's all you needed to do. I didn't care what it was autopilot or whatever. So for me, the way it introed was not an issue. It was the whole setup of the episode needed to happen to make this. What I wrote down in my notes was Star Trek Enemy Mine was the first thing I wrote. And this, if you don't know the movie Enemy Enemy Mine from the 1980s, it's an amazing low budget B sci-fi movie that is a classic. It is, was it Luke Gossett Jr.? (laughs) Um, And Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid, two fighter pilots that shoot each other down and then they have to work together to survive on this hostile planet. It's like, it's, it's, this is literally the plot of this entire episode. And as soon as it started, I was like, oh yeah, this episode, I remember this. I like mm-hmm. this. There's also tinges of, you know, like the next generation, Darmok and Jalard at Tanagra. It's like these yeah. two different <laughs> sides having to work together to yeah. solve a problem. But overall, I thought it was a good episode. Yeah, I, th- I agree. I think that the setup I didn't like in particular the idea that Trip is out there testing something and the Enterprise is apparently just flown away. I mean, yeah, I didn't understand it, that. that didn't it, make sense. It, from a certain perspective, it's just like that doesn't track. Like, how do, how do you, like, good luck with your changes to our shuttle. We hope it works. We'll be in the next solar system. Like, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. It would have, I think it deserved a little bit more thought as to like what is he actually doing out yeah. there yeah but i agree with you ultimately it is a MacGuffin. he just matter. needs to be out there yeah so we see him flying between these moons and one of the things that i really enjoyed was that they created they they effectively need it to be a needle in a haystack situation the enterprise needs to have a hard time finding him mm-hmm. so how do you do that well you create an extensive series of moons in which he could have landed on any of them. I like that. Yep. But what I really like is the idea of that environment of all those moons is precisely why he is there. 
I did yeah. like the setup of yeah. him saying, this is the perfect place for me to test this autopilot because with all these disparate gravity wells around me, the ship is going to have to respond to those over and over again. So that's perfect testing environment for what he's, what he's developed. So it was a case of it feeling like start to finish, everything that's in the episode belongs in the episode. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I felt like all of it was very well thought out from that perspective. Even with him making a joke of, oh, Mayweather, you might be out of a job if this thing works. Yeah. Yeah. And then minutes later after he's attacked, He's attacked by a small vessel, which he does get warning of. The Enterprise sees the small vessel on its way. He is uh, contacted by Archer to warn him of like, oh, there's a small craft on its way to you. The craft comes out of warp and immediately targets him, shoots him down, and then pursues him to the, the moon that he crashes on. I thought it was interesting that they set it up as he is shot. He never returns fire, but the other ship is also incapacitated. So mm-hmm. they've set up the idea that there's something in the atmosphere that knocks both ships out of commission. They crash near each other and now they're on this planet, but on his way down, he bemoans the fact that Mayweather is not there to help him fly yes. out of this problem. So I thought like every line of dialogue felt like it was well measured. Like yes. he's saying something, it has an impact overall for the entire episode. It's not just like, oh, here's a premise, doesn't make any sense. No explanation. It's like he's there for a reason. That reason also causes a problem. Yeah. He's developing something for a reason, but maybe he's neglecting the fact that the human aspect of it is critical to survival. So we end up on the planet. The moon is they they can survive, but they don't have the resources they need to survive long term. They have no food. Trip has no water. And the Arconan has none of whatever. Trip does have water. I meant water source. I meant yeah. you know, like yeah. they, they won't be able to, they're, they're going to outlast their, their supplies. supplies. Yep. And they also do not realize, and this is another bit that is introduced through to Paul. She suggests that the moons skyrocket in temperature during the day. So she estimates that the temperature is as low as it's cold on the moon right now, but during the middle of the day, it could go up to as high as 100. I think she says something about 130 degrees Fahrenheit or something. Yes. Like yep. So we're looking at a situation where Trip and potentially the Arconan will both bake. And the Arconan, who's played, who's named Zocon, right off the bat, it's all animosity. So we're introduced to Zocon. As he basically sneaks up on Trip, Trip flees, and then Zocon steals a part of Trip's ship. They're both dealing with the same situation, the breakdown of their equipment. What I do like about Zocon's the first half of the episode, he's not really talking because it's a different language. He's not saying much. We don't understand what he's saying. So most of his performance is completely physical. And it has to, he has to convey his ideas and his line of thinking and all that kind of stuff through, through what he's doing. And I thought that was one of the strengths of this episode from the directing and the writing because it, it sets up right away that he's a smart guy because yeah. he's, he's outsmarting Trip. He's trapping Trip. You can see him and Trip going like a little chess match going back and forth yeah. trying to outsmart each other. I thought that was really, really well done. And the little the nuances of his performance of he looks like a lizard. So let's have him move like a lizard. Like whenever yeah. the two of them fight, 
he ends up on the ground in like a gecko position on the ground yeah. Yeah. and it was like and it like his head looking up and it was like and then the little head nod he would do was yeah. very kind of lizard like yeah and i thought it was nice little nuances like that that really helped to sell that he is very alien he's very different and it's like the gook, the gook that he drinks. It's like yeah. there was some nice stuff that really made him feel very alien and different, which I thought was smart. Was smart, smart, smart. Yeah. You've mentioned Enemy Mine. I couldn't. You know, I mean, that's one of the complaints that some people have about the episode. They feel like Shaban plagiarized Enemy Mine in order to create this episode. I, mm-hmm. I think that that's unfair because yeah. Enemy Mine is creating a multi-year and literally multi-generational story it is it goes beyond these two pilots surviving it goes into them surviving and befriending one another and then one of them in a act of care for the other one taking on the offspring and it's a whole it's a whole scope beyond what this episode is about which is this is more of two people in a lifeboat this is having to cobble together a way to survive beyond effectively one day. The moment they get into this day, this day is going to kill them if well, they don't find a way through. Enemy Mine is actually kind of an anti-war film. Yeah. It's about you have somebody has to break the cycle of violence or it will just go on forever. And that's kind of the theme, the thematic view of Enemy Mine. Yeah. Like you said, it's a generational thing. They learn their animosity gets set aside. They become deep friends. He raises his, his friend's son. It's like it helps to kind of break that that war that everybody's locked in for devastating war for both sides. Yeah. This has nothing to do with that. This is yeah. just <laughs> you get, it's a similar theme of like you have to overcome your biases and, you know, animosity to work together to get through right. things. But it's not an anti-war film at all. It's, it's about ultimately having to, it, they both share the same element of looking past differences. Yes. To find common ground. And it yes. does have that. And it is similar to the episode Darmok, which is, as you mentioned, a classic of the next generation. His arms wide, Sean. His arms wide. It, His arms know, wide. Shaka, when, when the walls fell. The, yep. the difference being in that episode, you get past their antagonism. You get immediately into mm-hmm. the confusion of what are we doing here? Because Picard is in a different situation than Trip mm-hmm. is. Trip is actively attacked. In in Darmok, you right off the bat have the other captain shows up in front of Picard and puts his arms out and is just like, look, we're here together. And it's about, okay, overcoming a language barrier. Uh, yep. over, you know, finding that common ground, but overcoming, like, why are we not able to communicate? What are we missing here? In this, it is antagonism right off the bat. It is and it is clearly a antagonism that is born of fear. So it is about how do you, in a moment of fear, Trip is attacked by somebody who there is some wonderful dialogue, I think, between the Arconan captain and Archer toward the end of the episode, where the Arconan captain says, If I find out that my pilot fired on your man's vessel unprovoked, he's going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about a fear response right out the yeah. bat. The Arconi shows up and is fearful of something. He's fearful of the difference. And we're given a little bit of background around the Arconans that to Paul's history that she shares, the Vulcan experience with the Arconans is almost identical 
right down to the era of their experience with humans. The development of warp technology drew the Vulcans to both. And whereas the humans embraced and were open to collaboration and working with the Vulcans, even as long as it took and as stymied as they felt through it, the Arconan response to it was, in her words, they were deceitful, which I thought was a very interesting framing. That that was one aspect of the writing that I thought, I wish that that had been tweaked a little bit because of all the stuff we've learned about the Vulcans up to this point in Enterprise. The idea that the Vulcans responded to deceit from the Arconans and withdrew their support and pulled away from relationships with the Arconans, I thought was a very interesting framing. I, 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 would, I would have liked I, a little bit. I, it's, I didn't think it was a bad framing. I thought it, it deserved a little more explanation. Yeah. Because we have that history now with this show's perception of the Vulcans being deceitful on their own. Yeah. So when she says that, you take that with that grain of salt of what we know about them now of like, yeah, yeah. maybe they weren't deceitful. Maybe they just were not doing what you told them to do and you didn't like that. It's yeah. like you, you, you understood that there was more to it. I would but, have liked, yeah, I would have liked, she says that. And then I think in a very, I think the, to Paul's role in this was while being in the background, largely the way she was depicted, I thought was very, a very positive light. And I appreciated that she's coming in with good advice. She's coming in with advice that is measured. And she says, I advise caution to Archer. I would have liked in those moments, a little bit of a tweak from him toward her saying when she says the Arconans were deceitful and him saying maybe they just pushed back harder than humanity because maybe they saw a little bit of what was going on a little clearer than we did. There yeah. might have been an opportunity for him to kind of like wink at her and say like, oh, come on. Like, well, the, there's also something else I just want to point out. This is, I, this is a complete tangent. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this. But I noticed it in this episode and my wife was walking through the room and I was watching this and she was like, what's going on there? The way that T'Pol is sitting at her station on the bridge. Did you catch that? No, I did not. The way that Jolene Blaylock has to sit so that she's like right at the counter, like with the, the stuff that she's working on her, she has to sit with her like man spreading. She is so, she, <laughs> she is doesn't like have man's, enough depth to the, to the desk. Correct. Yeah. There's not enough depth. So she, her legs are, she's basically almost in like in a ba- ballet seeing position. <laughs> and it, it's like when you notice, wait, what's going on with her legs under the desk? It's like, it's like, that's not very ergonomic. Right. It uh, jumped at me and my wife when I watched this episode. I thought that may be something that depending on where the director puts the camera, it's avoided. And maybe that it slipped through because yep. Rex and Dawson wanted a specific shot. Yep. That's very funny. So I think that the comparisons between enemy mine and Darmok are absolutely earned, mm-hmm. but I don't view it. I don't view this as a lesser episode because of them. I also thought that this was reminiscent for me of the episode where Kirk has to fight the Gorn. Yeah. And it's about survival. It's a, it's a, it's a setup of antagonism. So it feels like it's a little bit of that episode of the original series. It's a little bit of next generation. It's a little bit of enemy mind, but it also manages to be its own thing. And I think the reason it does that is the stuff that you laid out, the fine acting from the man who's playing Zokan, who does so much work that's nonverbal. So like I was saying, the things that make this episode stand out 
as its own thing include the fine performance from Greg Henry, who played Zoe Khan. Greg Henry is a television and movie actor. He's done lots of work and he's been on in Star Trek things before. He was in one of the movies prior to being in this episode. He does so much stuff non-verbally. He does so much stuff that is verbal, but it's muttered under his breath. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that you had this guy who was basically super frustrated with the fact that he knows what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be connecting this thing to the thing. And it's just, why is this not working? And he's looking at pieces and he doesn't have that caveman tantrum. Yeah. Which a lesser episode would have done. It would have Mm -hmm. been like, I'm thinking about the first depiction of the Ferengi on next generation where they're literally dressed like cave people. Uh, They're wearing animal cloths and, and, are clearly intended to look like they just came out of a cave and they got into a warp vessel to fly across the galaxy. That's capital G galaxy, by the way. And he doesn't have that response. He's responding. He's intelligent. He's working through the problems. And I think the other thing is trip. The acting here from trip is top notch right up to the point at the end when he is having a moment of, I'm don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. And he's reminiscing. Yes. And he reminisces through episodes that we've seen, including getting pregnant. pregnant. I love the fact that that was the last one they threw out. He's like, I even got pregnant once. And it's done in this sort of comedic tone, but his ability to really shine as an actor in this episode, I thought was was really well done. You hit on the scene that really I had a note on because my favorite episodes, and you might have picked up on this if you over the course of the show are the ones where there's real good character development so it could be an episode that's laser focused with action it could be an episode that has no action as long as the plot has a laser focus and has a clear direction and it focuses on a handful of characters that gives them a chance to develop their character i'm i'm all in and this one gives so much character development to trip in that final moment where he's reminiscing and he's talking about things I thought the one sentence that captured his personality to a T and it was kind of like, if you were going to have to pick anything he said in the entire show and say, what is it about him? He said, it's been a hell of a ride was when he said that I was like, that is so trip that's that summarizes his entire character, which brought me back to the writing on this episode was so good. It was so good because everything he says is pushing him a step forward giving us as viewers a little more insight into who he is and how he operates and why he's even out here in space. Yeah. He's an adventurer. He's an explorer. He's out here to have an experience. It's a hell of a ride. So and I it's been it. consistent with his yeah. desire in, in all the episodes where yeah. he doesn't get to go planet side. He always he's wants constantly to go. going. He's constantly going to Archer and saying like, but maybe I should go because maybe there's a reason for me to go because maybe I want to go. Exactly. And, and like you said, that is the perfect encapsulation of his character. And it is, it's a demonstration of getting that moment. It takes work, but it's not impossible. And that's what you and I have been asking for, for characters like Mayweather. Yes. We've been asking for that for Linda Park's character, Hoshi. Yep. It, like we want there to be more opportunities. We see it with T'Pol. We see it with Archer. You even get it with flocks. Yeah. But some of the characters don't get their moment to shine. And it's really unfortunate because when it does happen, you can see that they can make it work. They can make it happen. You get an opportunity for Trip to be speaking his character throughout the entire episode. I love the fact that he, in 
at every turn of confrontation with this guy is looking for ways to de-escalate. Yes. Right up into the midst of, and this was at the beginning of this episode, my question for all of the listeners is, can you make a good friend by beating the crap out of them? They have, this is something that Matt and I talked about earlier, finding the balance between action and philosophical examination is tricky. And this episode, I think, marries those two very, very well because the action that takes place in the form of a minutes-long fist fight where mm-hmm. at any moment, one of them could potentially kill the other one mm-hmm. is very well rendered. That fight scene, it's, it, it leaves question marks as it's going on of, is Trip going to have to kill this guy yep. in order to get out of here? We go into it with the assumption that Trip will survive because, of course, he's a main character on the show, but it really does push to an edge right up. Trip looks like he's had the snot knocked out of him. Because he has. The makeup, the makeup yeah. at that moment, they've managed to push his upper lip into a position that makes it look super swollen, marks under his eye, blood coming out of his nose. He's been choked he's been pummeled he's hit the other guy with a rock and they are now in a position where he's got the gun the one and only gun drawn on on this guy and you think he might have to pull the trigger and for the second time in the episode he throws the gun away it becomes a much more dramatic moment because he's already done it once the message just wasn't received. far enough yeah. yeah it was like i threw it away once and it wasn't far enough now i'm gonna really chuck this thing and he chucks it away at a distance where getting to it is now going to take more effort and both of them are so exhausted from their fight and i love that moment that for me is a demonstration of strong storytelling and strong character revelation in that moment there's one other moment that jumped out at me was it doesn't play down to us the viewer Usually, like there's a scene where Trip, he's working on the other ship, and he's struggling to get it work, and he's to get it to work, and he's being basically told you have to do this, you have to get it working. He's like, I can't, I can't. Just look at this. And he says, Come look at this. He says, He's yeah. like, yeah, this is not going to work. Blah blah. And he gets the guy to come over, and he like does the little spray to the eyes. Yeah. They did not telegraph that to us, yeah. the viewer, at all. So I love the fact that shows that he is so. He's quick on his feet. He's thinking yeah. fast. Where in a, in a weaker script would have been like showing him like looking at the panel and then kind of doing a glance at him and going, <laughs> hey, I need you to come yeah. over here and look at this. It would have yeah. been telegraphing. I'm about to yeah. do something nefarious where yeah. it was, it wasn't telegraphed to us, the viewers. So when he does that, it's just like, it's a surprise to <laughs> the other guy as well yeah. as to us. So And it, I think it's, that it's... I, I agree with you completely. And I feel like it's it's almost unfortunate that I feel like the reason that that strength of that moment came out of the fact that trip is by himself. I think mm-hmm. if there had been another person, an ally for trip in that scene, something. he would have been like, I'm going to spray him in the face yeah. and then tried to spray him in the face instead of just doing it. And yeah. it's the just doing that happens in this episode again and again and again, including when you get the, Zokan is spraying that stuff out of his mouth and he sprays him in the eyes, blinding him at one point in the fight. We've seen that spit used to, to benefit. It heals a wound, but the idea that it's also potentially used 
as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Like we know that that exists, but when that moment comes out, it just happens. It doesn't, it's not telegraphed. It's not, we're not left with, well, uh, here's a list of things I'm expecting to happen at any moment. Even though what does happen right from the beginning, you can tell what type of episode you're going into. Oh, he's mm-hmm. going to have to learn to work with this alien in order to get off the, this moon safely. Yep. That's fine because what really strong storytelling does is makes you forget you know the path. It makes you experience the journey. And that, I think, is what this episode does beautifully. The one sentence from this episode that summarizes that, Sean, is it's a hell of a ride. It's a hell of a ride. (laughs) So overall, I think that it's pretty clear. Matt and I both really enjoyed this episode. I would give it a nice solid B plus, like like a good, a good uh, solid grade. Response on the whole is kind of uneven. I found a lot of information online saying that people thought that this, first of all, was too much of a rehash of previous episodes. I think one of the things that Matt and I have touched on in previous episodes of this podcast is Star Trek did not have a lot of new ground to walk. Mm-hmm. And Enterprise was largely rehashes of earlier concepts. Yes. So it reaches a point where that as a negative, you really can't keep beating that horse. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. We'll see multiple episodes coming up in the next, you know, two and a half seasons of Enterprise. We're going to see similar storylines. But if you're going to see a similar storyline, you want to see it done well. And I mm-hmm. think that's what this one does is it does trod familiar territory but it does it really well as opposed to an episode that we talked about previously, which is trips adventure with the princess. Again, (laughs) we felt like we'd seen that story before. In fact, it's almost the same sort of plot line, him having to learn to work together with somebody he doesn't know so that they can survive a bad situation. But that felt hackneyed. Whereas this doesn't, this feels, it makes, like I said, it makes you forget, you know, what's coming. Agreed. It makes you enjoy getting there. Yep. So I think there's that response. And as far as like biting off of enemy mine, I don't think it's worth beating up this episode for its comparisons to enemy mine. I think that this does a really terrific job and does it in an environment where toward the end, as they are trying to elevate their communication array high enough to be able to communicate with the ships in space, I found all of that really compelling as like a survival story. The two yes. of them without their resources are depleted. They are, they are on their last gasp and it's in a location where I was just like, how was this filmed? This looks pretty impressive. It looks like a giant rocky precipice that they've climbed up in order to, to signal their, their ships. And I was left thinking like, this is kind of a scale that we don't normally get in Star Trek. Yeah. I agree. At, the, at least at this time in the show's yeah. production. But yeah, yeah, I agree. It was, it was very well ex- executed. So to our listeners, what are your thoughts about this? Do you think that this is like we've talked about another story where they may be walking familiar ground, but they do a good job with it? Or do you have the opinion of others, which is to say, yeah, we've seen this before. Why did they bother? Let us know in the comments. You can go in YouTube directly below the video and you can leave your comments there. Or if you're listening through Spotify or Apple or another podcast provider, you can find our contact information in the podcast notes. 
We'd love to hear what you have to say. Next time, Matt, we're going to be talking about the episode Stigma. What do you think that's about? I don't know, Sean, but I wonder if you have to wear a big letter A or something on your chest. Mm. Mm-hmm. Adultery on the Enterprise. Yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. And Matt, do you want to let our listeners know what you have coming up on your other channel? What are you talking about next week? Next week? Uh, well, the, in the coming couple of weeks from now, I'm going to be talking about solar roofs. I'm going to be revisiting that topic. Like the Tesla solar roof is stealing all the thunder, but there are other products on the horizon that look really promising, more affordable, worth considering. So if you're into that kind of stuff, check that out. As for me, you can go to my website, seanfarrell.com, find information about my books, and you can also find the books available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore or public library. A reminder, if you want to support the show, please consider reviewing us on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it is you listen. And if you'd like to more directly support us, you can go to trekintime.show and you can click the Become a Supporter button and throw some coins at us. And just a quick word of thanks to our subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. We've recently passed a thousand subscribers and we appreciate you subscribing. We appreciate you checking out our episodes and we appreciate you your feedback. We enjoy reading the comments and we look forward to talking to you next time about stigma. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.